All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Hebrews. We are in chapter 9, having just gone through a difficult part. I wish we could say we were all the way through the difficult parts, but we're not. So we're going to do the best we can. And uh, if I have to refer to uh, John Kleinig's commentary for you, I'll gladly do so. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. It seems to me that we left off two weeks ago, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, and had we been through verse 14, I seem to remember having gone through verse 14, but... I think we started with 15, I have a little check mark, so... Okay. Okay, so let's just, for the sake of it, pick up at verse um, 11, and uh, we're a little bit midstream, but we're just going to have to deal with this the best we can. A couple of things I'll point out. And you recall these little breaks with the headings. For example, in the Lutheran Study Bible ESV, you see the heading Redemption Through the Blood of Christ. That break is put in by an editor after the fact. And you're going to see that because there's continuity between what is preceded and and what comes before. But especially I'd like to draw your attention. Looks like, boy, this is one heck of a run-on sentence. Um, (laughs) It looks like maybe verse 8 is what we have to start with of chapter 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. We discussed this in detail last week. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience. So, um, we're paying attention to this language of perfect, which becomes a sub-theme, and the language of conscience, which becomes important in the next section. So, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink, and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. I think I had Christ is the reformer here. But we have a a distinction being made here. I think at its simplest, easiest to understand, the distinction would be that the Old Testament and all its various rites and rituals, um, its washings, regulations, etc., are for the body. The New Testament is for uh, the perfection of the conscience. We're going to see this theme worked out in greater detail as we move along. So, if it, that's, But that's the first time, in this section at least, that we see this contrast between the conscience and the body. The Old Testament corresponding with its ability to um, perfect the body or purify the body and um, the new with its ability to not only purify, but perfect the conscience. All right, so continuing the thought into verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Now, the good things that have come are what they are already experiencing as Christians some decades after Christ's death and resurrection. Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So this is the heavenly tabernacle, after which the earthly tabernacle is patterned. He, namely Christ, our high priest, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And this language of redemption is important. Sometimes it's monetary in nature, and you know we sometimes think of that like you redeem a gift certificate or something like that. And uh, I'm not going to suggest that that's an entirely wrong or alien thought, but that's not what's going on here. Here, um, for example, in the law to redeem something, like like if you if your donkey has a, a baby donkey, um, a son, and you want you, you have to break that don- that baby donkey's neck. It belongs to the Lord. It's subject to. Death. Now, this traces us back to a remembrance of the tenth and final plague and getting set free from Egypt, okay? And if you find it weird, well, you're not an Old Testament Hebrew person, so feel free to think it's weird. But if you wanted to keep the, the baby donkey, the son donkey, firstborn male, you would need to redeem it. How do you redeem it? By sacrificing a lamb. So, in order, so you see that the donkey is subject to death. It's as good as death, the baby donkey. And if you want to save it from death, something else has to die in order to bring it back. That's redemption. So now what's, what's redemption here? Well, we are the ones who are subject to death and under the curse. And in order to be redeemed, the Lamb of God has to die in our place in order to redeem us. Does that make sense? There has to be a switch. That's the redemption. Okay, so he has secured for us an eternal redemption, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer, this was like if somebody, this is from Numbers, if somebody gets in contact with a dead body, you have to burn a heifer and then sprinkle it into the water and then their body's purified by that. I think I did a sermon, yeah, I did a sermon series on that. It was like weird types of baptism. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and this is one because you've got the you have to add the sacrifice to the water in order to purify and of course the church fathers make the point that that's just like baptism where it's the death of Christ that comes to us through the water that purifies us. All right, well slightly aside from the point, but this um sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, that's what that's referring to part of the Old Testament or Old Covenant. So if the blood of goats goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now keep flesh in mind. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
All right, so again, we have this contrast that we saw at the beginning back in verse uh, 9 and 10. Um, we're talking there in the end of verse 9, perfecting the conscience of the worshiper. And then in 10, the old covenant, its various washings and regulations are for the body. And here we see that same parallelism in verse 13, the purification of the flesh. That's what the blood of goats and bulls and the water and ashes of the heifer can purify is the flesh. But Christ, so much more superior with his perfect blood, offering himself through the eternal spirit, um, he purifies our conscience from dead works. Now we're going to get into that. He's going to develop this theology of what it means to have a pure or a purified or a perfect telos is the language, consummate conscience. Um, now he purifies us from dead works, that's sins, that's not really a works righteousness thing in view, that's just manifest sins. And he purifies our conscience to serve the living God. And the serve here is liturgical. Again, the whole point is that, okay, well, what's the pastoral occasion again? We have Jewish Christians who might be interested in going back to their first covenant, even though that's been abrogated by Christ, in order to avoid persecution. So we're stating why the second covenant that Christ has brought is infinitely better and is worth suffering for. And in the Old Covenant, it's only a few who are able to go into the holy places. In the New Covenant, it is precisely Christ who goes first, but because he goes first and purifies our consciences, we will follow him in priestly service. So that's this business of to serve the living God. If you, think of, um, if you think of the great throne room in Revelation, it doesn't take much to transform that into the divine service with, in fact, those images really properly are blurred, with the one seated upon the throne, in essence, seated upon the mercy seat of the uh, Ark of the Covenant in heaven. And so we are being brought into that heavenly throne room. That's the same as being brought into the holy places, with our consciences sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. Okay, So the vision of uh, heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, what happens as you pass through death is you are entering into the temple made without hands, the tabernacle made without hands, into the holy places and beholding God. All right, that, again, these themes are going to be developed more as we go along, but let's simply... Oh, this was a kind of an interesting idea. I don't know. Kleinig brought it up. He, um, where it says, who through the eternal spirit offered himself. Kleinig sees this as a contrast with the offering of the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer. There in the ashes of the heifer, um, you see burning. And of course, the, the sacrifices weren't just slain, but they were burned. And uh, Kleinig sees, or sees a possible allusion here, I don't want to say it too strongly, to Christ's blood being offered, himself being offered as a sacrifice um, through the eternal spirit as a reference to the spirit being the fire. So it's an interesting way to think. It's an interesting way to think. 
if the Old Testament sacrifices are all um, all involve a burning of the body, at what point in time and in what sense would we see Christ being the Holocaust, the whole burnt offering? We very often um, homiletically will say like in the wrath of God or something like this. But this opens up a different possibility. And that is via the Holy Spirit, who in many places in script, well, in the New Testament, several places, um, is associated with fire. So, for example, um, we're told by John the Baptist that he baptizes with water, that Christ, whose sandal he is not worthy to untie, will come and baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then kind of tantalizingly when, who is it? Is it James and John? Their mom comes and says, uh, hey, I want my boys to be seated at your right and left hand. Do I have that correct? And then um, Jesus goes into this discourse about that, but he says, um, and he kind of asks this question, um, will you be able to drink the cup that I am able to drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And of course, what is that? We've already had the association of baptism and fire, And what is the baptism with which he is yet to be baptized? He's already been baptized in the Jordan by John, so what's he talking about? The cross, yeah. So the cross is, in a sense, a baptism. And how do we understand that? Probably a baptism in fire. Again, sort of bolstering this case that um, this may well, this offering of Christ, um, the Holy Spirit may be viewed as the fire creating the Holocaust, the whole burnt offering that is Christ. So I just, I, I point that out because I think it's a fascinating idea. And it's certainly, <laughs> even if it's not exactly what he's after here, what we've just articulated is an infinitely better theology than sometimes you see the little well-meaning crosses with the Holy Spirit hanging from them and you go, the Holy Spirit wasn't crucified for me. Oh, okay, so where was he? Well, easily, um, when Christ uh, dies, he doesn't give up the ghost in the sense of kicking the bucket, but he, traditios, he hands over the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is there definitively. Um, That's capital S, Spirit. Um, But where else might the Holy Spirit be? Interesting to see this in the language and imagery of the Old Testament sacrificial context, the Holy Spirit might well be the fire. So, for your consideration. Would that be also the thing with the burning bush and the uh, tabernacle with the fire mm-hmm. at night? Yeah, yeah. Burn it, yeah the burning bush, bush guy, yeah, and he's yeah. in there and the bush isn't consumed. Yeah. Because yeah. mm-hmm. that's the same thing here. It's mm-hmm. where, hey, it's not consumed. Yeah, I that's like That's what it. caused Moses to go and say, I want to see this thing. Mm-hmm. It's curiosity. That killed the cat. Yeah, I like it. I like it. I need to think a little bit more in these terms. It's you know, it's very fascinating. The the presence of um, the of of Christ with fire. So in the Old Testament, you have the burning bush where he's in the bush. Um, he's the one who says to Moses, "I am." And um, did you catch that in the uh, in the reading of John, where um, Jesus is in the garden praying, and Judas and the band of soldiers come in to arrest him? And he says, who do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And then anemically, unfortunately, the ESV renders it, I am he. And they all fall down. It's ego, I me, I am that I am. It's what he spoke to Moses through the burning bush. And that's why they (laughs) they all fall down. That's my kid's favorite part. 
Yeah. So they all fall down and then they all stand back up and gather themselves. It's really this remarkable thing. Remember what he said earlier in John, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And there it's demonstrated that he could do whatever he wanted. So Jesus is in the burning bush. Jesus is also in the pillar of fire. Remember the pillar of uh, fire by night leads into the pillar of cloud by day. Yeah. And then um, also Jesus is in the fire. I don't know why I'm off on this tangent, but it's enjoyable. Jesus is in the fire when um, Samson's parents, because Samson's a miracle, a miracle child again, and uh, they're sure that they've seen God, and they're right, but they think they're going to die, and in that they're wrong, because it's the second person. And so they go to give a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and what does he do? He leaps into the fire and ascends into heaven in the fire. Boy, that might be the best type of this, if this is right. Oh, it's really interesting. I have to think about some more. Please. I have a question on the note on 912. There's a quote from Luther. There is. And the last part of it, or the second half, mm-hmm. I don't know. Would you like me means. to, re- I'll, I'll read that note. Oh. Would that be all right? Sure. 912, Luther, uh, with his own blood, to be sure, he redeemed and sanctified all men just once. But because we are not yet perfectly pure, but remnants of sin still cling to our flesh, and the flesh wars against the Spirit, therefore he comes spiritually every day. Day by day he completes the time set up by the Father more and more, abrogating and abolishing the law. Okay. Yeah, well, okay, so I'm not really familiar with Luther's context here. American edition 26, that's Galatians, I think. Is that Galatians? Pretty sure it's Galatians. Okay, well, let me do, let me do Luther's theology the way I think he's doing it. And this would actually help. I, I'm thankful you brought this up because it's a part I hadn't emphasized that Kleinig certainly does. And that's the ongoing nature of this. So... What's being, con- I, I think this is what happens in my mind, and this might be a little bit of an error that I have to correct. Um, because what, what's being um, contrasted right here isn't so much the repeating sacrifices versus the one-time sacrifice. Arguably elsewhere in Hebrews, that is, that contrast is being made, that the one is superior. Kleinig takes it that what's really being contrasted here is that is not the repeated nature. Christ offers his sacrifice. There's one sacrifice, but there's a perpetual ministry, that, a perpetual intercession and high priestly ministry that Christ is working. So present tense, ongoing. Um, that's Kleinick's point. So that when we're sitting here saying, um, uh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without out blemish to God. Um, so the who through the spirit offered himself without blemish to God is the past tense event, is the cross. But the present tense event is how much more will the blood of Christ, now skip the past, 
purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's a continuous ongoing action. That's the argument. A continual purification of the conscience through his blood. A continued ministry, present tense. All right. So back to Luther trying to make sense of what he's after. With his own blood, to be sure, he redeemed Christ, redeemed and sanctified all men just once. That's the cross. That's the part we said was completed. But because we are not yet perfectly pure, thus our consciences need to be purified, but remnants of sin still cling to our flesh, and the flesh wars against the spirit. It's the internal battle within us. Therefore, he comes spiritually every day. Day by day, he completes the time set by the Father more and more, abrogating and abolishing the law. So the point here, I'm going to read Luther as charitably as I can. The point here is that Christ has an ongoing spiritual ministry to us, continually cleansing our conscience day by day, in the same way that he he will say, like, in the Christian church, we should daily and richly receive the forgiveness of sins. Nobody's showing up here on a daily basis, but we all understand what he means, right? And um, what about this abrogation of the law? Uh, Again, I'm going to read it as best as I can here, that in the context of Hebrews, the law being abrogated is the Old Testament covenant. So the sacrifices and the need to perpetually sacrifice and the cleansing of the, of the flesh or the purification of the flesh. That's being abrogated, set aside. And if this is Galatians, which I think it is, Luther probably means a little bit more than that. He probably means the accusation of the law being daily put away and pressed, pressed down by Christ who purifies the conscience. Because in Luther's mind, it's going to be the, if the law, yeah, in fact, that's exactly what's happening. In Galatians, he makes this distinction, and I've used it frequently enough in here because it's a helpful distinction that if you let the law into the conscience, you're going to end up works righteousness. And so he's seeing Christ through his blood purifying the conscience by driving the law out of the conscience and into the flesh, into the old man where it belongs. This is Luther's little mini theme in, uh, in Galatians. What happens, by the way, if you... So if you let the law into the conscience, what happens? Works righteousness, because my standing before God is dependent upon my obedience to the law. So you can't have the law in the conscience. The law's got to go down to the flesh. Where, what goes in the conscience only? The gospel, the blood of Christ. That's what purifies the conscience. All right, now what happens... Um, we, we said what happens if you bring the law... Up into the conscience, it's works righteousness. But what happens if you push the gospel down into the flesh? Antinomianism, lawlessness. So you're just giving yourself, you're giving the flesh permission, saying Christ died. Go on sinning that grace may abound. So it's really kind of an ingenious little pastoral tool and distinction he's derived there from the scriptures. I'm not sure exegetically it entirely fits, but uh, close enough that the editors of the Lutheran Study Bible. Uh, wanted to insert that comment. So did that kind of answer the treatment? All right. Yeah, thanks for that. And I really do appreciate that because that is something Kleinig draws out that what he wants us to see right here is the, the perpetual ministry of Jesus by which he is cleansing our consciences. That we might serve the living God. And that's going to be like liturgical service of God. Is that a present tense reality? Yeah, Absolutely. Heaven joins earth every, every time the Lord says, this is my body, this is my blood, and he's talking about earthly elements. There's not two Christs, one in heaven and one on earth, but one Christ, and heaven and earth are blurring, and we are joining with 
angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven in the one worship of God. It's a beautiful reality of the divine service. So this um, being um, having our consciences purified from dead works to serve the living God is present tense and future tense. Theologically, of course. All right. So far, so good? 15. Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. There's that language of redemption. Through Christ's death, we had to be redeemed, brought back. All right. Um, Let's go a little further, and then I'll just kind of walk through it. For This is unfortunate. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Why is it unfortunate? Because it's the exact same word that's used for covenant in 15. Why wouldn't you just use the same word? So, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. That's diatheke. And then verse 16, for where a diatheke is involved. So, it's the same exact word. Why translate it with two different English words? I, it, I don't know. I'm not trying to be overly critical. It just lends itself to confusion. So, when we're talking about him being a mediator of the new covenant, we're talking about the cross. If you go to the red letters and ask Jesus himself what the covenant is, it's his blood in the cup. This is the new diatheke, he says, the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Okay, and that's the cup that he gives us to eat and drink. So, all right, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. We're immediately thinking of the shedding of his blood on the cross into the chalice for us for the forgiveness of our sins. All right, so that those who are called, this is the idea of the catechism called by the gospel, we're all called by this, and that via this new covenant in his blood, we receive the promised eternal inheritance. You know, again, um, kind of inferred here is our sonship via baptism. But we receive the eternal inheritance, which we've already just glimpsed. That's to serve the living God into, into the ages of ages, into perpetuity as his priests. And then just continuing, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That's us being redeemed from the first covenant, brought into the new covenant and thus becoming heirs of the eternal inheritance. And then for a will, for where a will, this is verse 16, um, because diatheke means covenant, it means testament, it means will in the sense of like last will and testament, that's why the English authors went with this, whatever, the translators. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. All right, so when Jesus makes his new covenant, in the upper room, with sealing it with his own blood, it's by his it's his death that instantiates that new covenant. So then the old covenant is done away with, the new is established by his death. 
Uh, the reformers, of course, make this argument that you can't go changing the words of institution, where Jesus says, this is my body given for you, this is my blood shed for you. Um, yeah, this cup is the New Testament, the new will in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. You can't go changing those words because they literally are a legally binding testament, a legally binding will, a last will and testament. And no more could you go take your, you know, your parents' uh, uh, will and testament and alter it so that you get all the benefits rather than your siblings. No sooner could you do that can you change Christ's words from is and to symbolize and so forth. All right, but yeah, this is the point then is um, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So now that Christ has died, the new has come, I think is the point, very generally. And then 18, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. That's the Sinaitic covenant, the base of Mount Sinai. Remember the blood of the bulls. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the blood, uh, sprinkled both the book itself, uh, the scroll itself, uh, and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Again, these aren't moral categories. These are... um, cultic categories, worship categories. So the, you know, these items, the vessels used in worship, for example, are being purified with the blood. It's not as though they had sin. They're being set apart. Again, cultic or ceremonial distinction. So everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. All right, so we know... (laughs) Had Christ not shed his blood, had Christ not died on the cross, there would be no forgiveness of sins. Yeah, so we can connect these two. This is where our, the, the theology of atonement is essential. There's lots of people within Christianity, maybe more as of late, who are denying the atonement. Uh, if you deny the atonement, you may as well just pluck the book of Hebrews out of your scriptures. Well, as the Old Testament that undergirds it. talks about the necessity. Isn't that the same thing when he's talking about marriage? Yeah, it is the same thing. Well, the same principle when he's talking about marriage, right? Yeah, Till death do us part, but as soon as there's a death, you're free. There's this new reality created by the death. Yeah, and since he's the Savior, and he's the one that you're crucifying, so the Jews would know mm-hmm. that the new covenant is in effect because you killed the one who made the old covenant. You killed them. Mm. Oh, I see that argument. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, now yeah. the new covenant. This, because you killed me, you took me to the thing, <laughs> now you have to do the new one. Right, right. Yeah, if you were married via this covenant, yeah. no longer then. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see that point. It's a fine theological point. I got a question. Yes, sir. It's a question, but it's also an uh, observation. Mm-hmm. seems to me, 
as I'm as you're going through this, the what the old covenant and the new and the will. If there's a common denominator, it goes back to the very, very beginning when, as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, the promise was given then that Jesus Christ will come. He, he will send his righteous, you know, the, his seed. Mm-hmm. He's, his heel, what does it say? The seed of the woman. going to brush, uh, crush your head. Mm-hmm. That all had to be, that was like the root problem, and mm-hmm. the answer that ever since everything that's done since then, so my question is, mm-hmm. would they have that commonality? And now the will comes in. If I'm trying to connect some dots in my mind, God had something to offer them because mm-hmm. if you don't have anything, mm-hmm. you don't need a will. A will is only if if you you would not make a will. If you didn't have anything to give up, an inheritance. If mm-hmm. there was no inheritance, there was nothing, you had nothing, why have a will? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can only have a will if there was something to fulfill a promise that, of something to leave for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's how I make this connection with the, the same the word that you use to, uh, for both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's the same thing. It's just another way of explaining the inheritance and the uh, um, mm-hmm. the, uh, will the, is, the will is the promise that he gave. Yeah, the inheritance. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. So, well, in a sense, I think that's right. The covenant. They, covenant. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it would be. I mean, it, so if you go looking for covenants in the scriptures, you're going to find more than two. Yeah. Right. But there are these two main covenants. You're going to find other covenants. You're going to find a covenant given to um, Abraham that uh, his offspring will be the one through whom all the nations are blessed. You're going to find, I think you find a covenant in Noah. Uh, You're going to find a covenant in David that's going to be his son. So you're going to find lots of covenants. But the point is there's there's two universal covenants for God's people. That's where we get the Old and, and New Covenant, or the Old and New Testament. You bring up a really good point, and it's a point that Paul addresses. I can't remember where right now off the top of my head. need a little more water and a little more coffee. But, <laughs> but the point here is that the gospel actually precedes the law. The gospel precedes the New Covenant. Uh, as you mentioned, all the way back in Genesis 3.15, in the Proto-Evangelion, you have God saying to the serpent that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. You know, Adam and Eve were Christians. They were looking for... This seed of the woman, this Messiah, who's going to undo the work. Okay, so Noah's a Christian. Everybody's a Christian. Everybody gets wiped out. Noah and seven others, they're Christian. They repopulate the earth. Everybody's Christian, except for those who reject Christianity. And then comes the law. And it's like, from, viewed from that angle, it's like, well, why would God do this? And Paul's answer to this is to make sin exceedingly sinful. It's not that he's annulling or changing anything with the promise that preceded. It's that via the Old Testament, the instantiation of the Old Testament, with its Ten Commandments, with its civil laws, and very strict and stringent laws. You know, I think if your child talks back to you too frequently, you can stone him. Um, And then with its very strict ceremonial laws, if you wear too... uh, two different kinds of fabric together, I think you can be put to death. All right, but what, and then you've got all the animal sacrifices, an elaborate sacrifice, and it has to be just so or else. 
what is that whole thing? What is that? How does that whole thing function? Paul says as one great big amplifier of sin and that the remedy for sin has to be the death of an innocent, blood. Thus, um, if there is no blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God gave the old covenant in order to further our understanding of his promises of the Messiah, such that when the Messiah arrives, everybody should know, or at least in retrospect, we'll be able to piece back together the severity of sin, the necessity of his bloodshed to make atonement for sin. So that's, that's a kind of an easy way to piece together how, why does God give the Sinaitic law 1,500 years before Christ when thousands of years before that, um, he's already promised that Christ is going to come. He's already promised this gracious gospel. Yes, sir. Uh, let me see if I can understand this. We're saying that will, testament, covenant are all similar and used interchangeably in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, at least here, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's yeah. generally true. Yeah. Okay, so there's true. a new a covenant, new will, new testament, and there's mm-hmm. an old. And I've just, just been reminded of Genesis 15, which was always a strange uh, chapter for me, where God kills these animals, splits them in half, puts, puts uh, Abraham to sleep, mm-hmm. or, or Abram, I guess, at the time, and uh, with a smoldering pot. This was the start of the sacrificial system then. The animals had to be killed, and he specified which ones there that were cut in half. Do I have that right? So we're saying that something has to die for a, a will or testament to be, a covenant to be initiated. Mm-hmm. And in the New Testament, it's Christ, and here it was these animals that were cut in half. Yeah, now, the, yeah, the idea with that covenant in the ancient world is, so you would, you would kill the animals and you cut them in half, and then the two parties of the, co- okay, because what is, what is diatheke, what does covenant or testament or will mean? It actually means a legally binding agreement. That's where we're getting the fluidity then as subset of that legally binding agreement. All right, when the, two an- when the animals are all split in two in Genesis uh, chapter whatever, I can't, 15, um, Normally, what would happen if this was two human beings, they would both walk through those split animals together. What's the point? If I violate my agreement, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. May God do it, may another do it, may you do it. And so, like, that's the visceral (laughs) kind of, like... um, ceremonial action. What's remarkable about that is, does Abram walk through? No, God puts him to sleep and he sees in a vision these two elements of, uh, they're weird, aren't they? Like a, a boiling pot or something like this, and there's something else. But he sees these pass through, and these are the images and icons of God passing through. So it's a unilateral covenant. That is, it's an agreement made. And another way of saying a unilateral agreement is a promise. Because it's just one party saying, I swear to do this. And so God swears to Abraham to do this. And that's where Abraham can, you know, his conscience or his, uh, yeah, his conscience, his faith can grasp hold of that promise and that covenant 
what God has done, what God has promised. Yeah. So we can, yeah, we can make a distinction between like bilateral covenants, trilateral covenants, unilateral covenants, etc. It's just binding legal agreement. The binding legal agreement that God makes. Um, I mean, he, yeah. I don't know. There's so prior to this, of course, you have um, you have Cain and Abel making their sacrifices, and at least Abel is making a bloody sacrifice. There is a there's a little bit of split between church fathers here, but it seems that the majority take this to there's not a there's not a a difference in terms of uh, quality between the slain lamb of Abel and the, the produce that Cain the gardener brings. Um, it's not as if like God required the blood in one instance, and that seems to be the majority reading. But there is a minority that say, no, the blood was preferable. It shows that Abel got it and Cain didn't. Hebrews is going to touch on this, but Hebrews' focus is going to be on faith or not. Then the argument goes, yeah, but did faith manifest the different kind of sacrifice that was required? Yeah, who knows? Um, So anyway, Hebrews is going to have the view of faith. But we do know sacrifice tracks all the way back to there, and even the shedding of blood, um, whatever other things we might say or argue about in regard to that, we do know it goes back there. And indeed, it goes back earlier still, doesn't it? Where did they learn that? Well, Adam and Eve, as they're departing from the garden, God slays an innocent animal, takes its skins, and clothes them. The interpreters from as far back as you go all the way to the present have viewed that as, as a lamb. It's just extra biblical, so take it or leave it. Um, but an innocent dies for the guilty. That blood is shed. They're clothed with his garments to cover the nakedness, the effect of their sin, the iniquity of their sin. Yeah. So, um, so sacrifices around from the fall going forward. And then it, yeah, it picks up steam and formality with Abraham, to be sure, and then picks up its finalized form at the, uh, at the base of Mount Sinai with Moses. Ellie, can we get you in just a minute? Can, can we get Vicar quick? Um, I'm sure he has a, uh, a comment in regard to... We'll, we'll come around and get you. Actually, I had, I had just a quick question, kind of okay. sort of off topic, but um, oh, okay. so looking at uh, verse 15 of our text, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. I'm curious how you think uh, somebody from Rome or the East would respond if we pointed to this passage against the teaching that Mary is mediatrix in some way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even, I mean, even stronger, Paul says, I think it's to Timothy, isn't it, that yeah. there's one mediator between God and man, the, the man Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, How do they respond with lip service? Yes, yes, of course we know that. Um, But it is. But but could he have become uh, incarnate without the Virgin Mary's fiat? Without her, let it be so, as you have said. So this plays into their free will theology. It plays into their synergistic theology of our salvation, and it's all of one piece to just insert Mary, that the whole thing could not have happened unless she said, let it be unto me as you have said. Yeah, That's how they do it. I obviously don't agree with it, but that's how they do it. I don't know. 
you know, I'm on medication and my brain may not be perceiving this well, but the profundity of this, what's, what's read, what's being discussed, yeah. when you lay that against what the, how this is muted in America's, as I perceive it, uh, the silliness of the news that you have at, as the day ends, Mm-hmm. Um, becomes unessential, and and there is a um, a lessening of God's action in Christ. If you don't study this, this adds depth to Christ's death. Yeah, I think so. This is a this. Thank you for those comments. This is especially a treat for us because as we as we lean in um, to chapter nine and chapter ten, we're going to see how um, in the author's mind, yeah, we're looking forward to heaven and these heavenly realities, but there's a sense in which there are, there are ours present tense and already. We see that in this section where Christ, it's like this continued action of his purifying our conscience, as Luther said, each and every day. So uh, what we're going to see is that there's, there's not so hard of a distinction between the heavenly reality and the divine service that we experience on Sunday. It's just that, so there's the profundity, is that we're given to experience this. Now, we don't see it with our eyes. That's the hang-up. But that's all of the Christian faith. Is you don't see it with your eyes, you hear it with your ears, and you either believe it or don't. And if you believe it, you can begin to perceive it. Maybe that should be my slogan. Believe in order to perceive. That's close to Augustine. Crede ut intelligas. Believe in order to understand. Yeah, it's the same thing. I'm just ripping off Augustine. <laughs> Darn it! I've invented paper. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's um, yeah, that's his essential idea. Is you've got to believe in order to. You're not going to see it, so to speak. I don't know, but there's a but there's a mystery there too. Like, I look at you all, and I can't see the fact that you're Christians, but I know that you're Christians, and so I perceive it and I can't you see so there's even this kind of blurring between I see but don't see I don't technically see but rather perceive and that's there's a spiritual reality to this in the divine service that you believe that Christ is present because he says where two or three are gathered in my name there I am and if you believe that well enough you begin to perceive it, not in a sense that you say, oh, there he is, looks like he too could use a mustache trim. Uh, No, not in the way that you see it with your eyes, but in the way that you begin to perceive it as real and a reality. And it's obviously objectively there, it's just that you're becoming attuned to what is already there. This was effectively my Easter sermon, by the way, just different angle, um, that God is at work in instantiating these things, and he's inviting us by his word to perceive them already via faith. Sometimes we say the eyes of faith. It's fine. Yeah. Isn't that the same thing with attitude? Um, when I'm, I'm going back to Cain and Abel, Cain had a problem. And God talked to him about it, and it was his attitude. 
<laughs> so, exactly. I mean, it was. It was. Yeah, yeah. It was before he did. He said, What's wrong? Why is your heart down if you do right? His whole attitude, his whole mental process was wrong. And mm-hmm. God was talking to him mm-hmm. about that. To hey, but he didn't he didn't listen to it, and that's when he decided, mm-hmm. Hey, I fixed the problem, I get rid of the the yeah. nice brother and get rid of that. Yeah. It's um yeah, it's very interesting. I in a sense this becomes one of the major themes that it's not it's not the two categories of man are those that don't commit big sins and those that do. Everyone commits big sins. It's those who are willing to humble themselves and receive forgiveness or those who will stubbornly, recalcitrantly refuse. That's it. Yeah. Like Saul, like Cain, like Absalom, like Judas, and yeah, like the one thief on the cross, and on and on we go. Those are the two, those are in a sense the two generations or species of human beings. We're all united in sin, but there are those who will receive forgiveness and those who are too proud to. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Pastor, the, de- the deterioration of, of the interest in this word is, it's, as, I, as I age, I am... People are missing out. You know what's replaced this? Like Facebook and TikTok and Twitter. I mean, how... <laughs> ah! I mean, it's like, it's, it's a foretaste of hell. Don't you want to just shake these teachers that are presenting odd things in the classroom? <laughs> Shaking teacher say, syndrome. I don't know. <laughs> sit down and Is I want it, you to read Hebrew. Well, I like, your, I like your, your verbal imagery there because that's one thing that God's going to do. He's going to shake everything, yeah. right? Yeah, the final judgment is a shaking. So, yeah. Bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's fun. Okay, so <laughs> let's see. We've got a few minutes left. Let's try to get a little further. This, this text, we, we did it last week. We're doing it again this week. We're going to do it again next week. It's all kind of this whole theme. Um, this is probably one of the parts of this. Uh, I would, uh, yeah, for my money, this is like the most extensive, in-depth argument of the text. So, um, I don't know. Back up to back up to seventeen, just to reground ourselves. For a will, of course, it's the same. It's a testament or a covenant. Takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, and then yeah, the sprinkling of everything. Did you notice that hyssop is there? Hyssop shows up everywhere. Everywhere that's really important, that is. And then it shows up at the cross. Remember, like, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. And you're like, what the heck is hyssop? And then you get on Wikipedia and it all seems to be wrong. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, hyssop shows up at all these really important, like, that's a sermon waiting to happen. Vicar, we'll see who gets to it first. The (laughs) The hyssop sermon. Yeah. And then it shows up with the, the sponge they put on hyssop, yeah, the, with the sour wine. Okay. And then, um, yeah, he sprinkles them all. And then in then ver- uh, verse 20, this is Moses saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. 
This is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Interesting. And Jesus certainly speaks as God there, as opposed to like the Father commanded this. Verse 21, and in the same way, he, Moses, sprinkled with the blood both the tent, the tabernacle, and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. I don't know why it's plural. The same way in the next line, I don't know why holy places is plural, and no one really does. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, which is really the uh, suntelia. Suntelia, so telos, at the consummation of the ages, in the fullness of time, as it were, when the timing was just perfect, just right. It's a good line to remember. Han, when are you going to go mow the lawn? In the fullness of time. Yeah, so that's all this meant, like when everything was perfectly aligned, when it was exact, like no, this does not happen by accident. That's what's meant here. Not so much this, like, I don't know, like the world should have ended then kind of thing that the English maybe and our minds maybe take us to. That's not the point. So he has appeared once for all at the fullness of time, at the consummation of the, of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. My goodness. If you don't have an atonement, you don't have the book of Hebrews. It's just right there. And just as it is appointed for man to die once. Okay, this is kind of a complex parallel. We'll, we'll work through this a couple times. So, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There's the first um, little chain of two. Just as it is appointed... For man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Here's the comparison. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Okay. So in the first half, in yeah, in verse in verse 21, you see, and just as there's the comparison. So we're doing a comparison. It is appointed for man to die once. That parallels Christ having been offered once for the sins of many. And then in the case of the man who dies once and then goes to the judgment, Christ is offered once and then appears a second time. And he does so, he appears this second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So here we have the second coming of Christ and we already have our eschatology all figured out for us because 
Every other system has multiple comings of Christ. Here we just have a singular second coming of Christ. So again, it's all sorted for us. If you just have the second coming of Christ, you have biblical eschatology. If you've got Christ sneaking in to save the elect and then sneaking in again and maybe sneaking in another way, depending on your system, uh, you've got too many comings. Okay. So he's coming a second time. And he's coming not to deal with sin, but to save us. All right, so I think that that's straightforward enough. We certainly take this leap into the cosmic. We're, we're talking about Christ entering heaven. We're talking about the inevitability of his return a second time. Um, not to deal with sin. Sin's already been dealt with. To save we who are eagerly awaiting for him. And I don't think it would be a misreading to take this as just profound comfort too. He's not coming to chasten us and hunt us down and re-prosecute and condemn us on account of our sins. Um, He's coming to uh, purify our consciences um, in in the final sense as as we enter the heavenly realm with him. All right, um, any thoughts, any questions on that section? Straightforward enough? Sometimes this appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, is taken to be not the cosmic judgment of the world, but the personal judgment that you die, and then it's determined if you personally are in heaven by grace through faith or in the other place. Um, But I'm not sure that that's exactly what's happening here. But I do bring it up because that's part of the conversation that's taken place with these verses. The study note says, Because all humans die once, Christ's sacrifice cannot be repeated. Also, one cannot hope for a second life by which he might appease God through his own actions. Christ is going to appear a second time for the last judgment. He comes without our sins, which he bore as a heavy load when the Father made him to be sin for us. Also, he comes not in the likeness of sinful flesh, but in the majesty of his transfigured body. So I think that does a nice job of kind of painting around, giving us a little bit of a context there to those those verses. Is Luke perceived to be the author of Hebrews? That's hotly debated. Those are fighting words that you even suggested. Yeah, uh, we don't know if it's Luke or Paul or who knows. I, there's a bunch of other. But what would validate that about him? Oh, how about it? Yeah, how about if we how about if we take a look? I'll show you what, what Kleinig says after the class. Uh, we're talking about the authorship, so yeah, I'll show you what Kleinig says. I don't know for my part. I, I'm agnostic toward it for my part. All right, that's uh, that's good enough for today. Let's hit chapter ten next week. The Lord be with you.